Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That counted up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. So the lightning crack, crack, crack. Heard the thunder roll, roll, roll. Then the sky went black, black, black. And we lost control. And now I'm questioning sound. Tell the difference between heaven and a sound Don't think I can get higher But no one can bring me down I'm questioning it solid ground Don't care much about your gravity Hello listeners And welcome to Ohio Mysteries The music you're listening to is Gravity By Taylor Lamborn Taylor's from Cleveland and known for her soulful rock and roll. She's our featured musical artist this week. So stick around to the end of the podcast. Would love to tell you more about her and let you listen to the entire song. For now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Paula says we're taking a little side trip to the Appalachian Mountains for this mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who's got a drawer full of awards for telling these kinds of stories during her career with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. So, Paula, I've grown accustomed to your stories not having an ending. I mean, we're Ohio mysteries, after all. You promised me that at least part of this mystery is going to be answered, right? Yeah. Actually, that's where our armchair detective comes in. As our regular listeners know, we've been bringing in Ohio Mysteries listeners after we're done telling our story to weigh in on the case and offer their own theories. But in this case, our armchair detective is actually part of the story, and he's going to tell you exactly how he played detective to resolve his own personal role in this drama. Oh, wow. Well, I can't wait. Where do we start? Well, Steve, we're going to start in August of 1960. And the phone rings in the modest home of an Akron couple. Now, it's a call they've been expecting, though they never knew when it would come. A woman on the other end of the line gives them very specific instructions. They have exactly 24 hours to drive to Georgia, specifically a little border town in the Appalachians called McKaysville. If they're not there in 24 hours, don't bother coming. So the couple, they don't hesitate. They jump in their car and head south. They don't tell anyone. It's a 12-hour journey there, Probably another 12 hours to get back home. With a little luck, they'll be there and back before anyone knows they're missing. Now, when they arrive in McKaysville, they pull on to Tacoa Street, and there it is, the building they were told to look for, the Hicks Clinic. And when they get inside, Dr. Thomas Hicks is waiting. The man from Akron hands the doctor $800 in cash, just as agreed upon. 
and a six-pound, four-ounce baby boy wrapped in a blanket is placed in his wife's arms. As the doctor hands them a forged birth certificate naming the couple as the infant's parents, they are given one last instruction. Get back in your car and don't stop driving until you get across the Ohio River. Well, the couple happily complies. Now, the baby is Mark Eckenrode, and he will grow up in the Ellet neighborhood of Akron, often chuckling about the funny story his parents told him about his birth. After seeing the city of McKaysville on his birth certificate once, he'd asked them how it was that the son of an Akron tire factory worker would come to be born in the Appalachian Mountains. And they'd tell him how they'd foolishly gone on vacation during his due date. And that the Hicks Clinic was the closest facility when his mom suddenly went into labor that warm summer day. And Mark sometimes corrected friends who thought he'd been born in Akron. No, he'd tell them, McKaysville, McKaysville, Georgia. McKaysville, they'd ask. Yep, he'd say. And then he'd launch into the story of how he entered the world as his parents were trying to sneak in one last trip. Now, Mark never questioned the story. For 36 years, it was the fact of his life. And then came Mother's Day, 1997. Mark made his morning coffee and unfolded his Akron Beacon Journal, just as he did every day. He started to read the main story. It was about an Akron woman who had spent years trying to find her birth parents after learning she'd been adopted. The woman revealed how she had found at least 49 other people in Summit County alone who had been adopted the same way she had. Wow, Mark thought, and he kept reading. All of these people had been sold out the back door of a tiny southern clinic, the Hicks Clinic in McKaysville, Georgia. Oh, no. Oh, in a heartbeat, Mark was stripped of the world that he knew. Right. I mean, hey, you must have thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I was born in you know, Georgia, unlike, you know, most people who live in this area. I remember feeling really cool that out of all my brothers and sisters, because there's five of us, that I was the only one born in Akron. Made you feel special. That's right. Were the rest Barberton? Yep. Ah. Yeah, I was born in St. Thomas. Wow. Well, yeah, he, he definitely thought it must have been cool, because he told his friends this story repeatedly. And, you know, he's... Actually, here's where I kind of enter the the picture briefly. Because, you see, Mark's a good friend of mine. Right. I remember him when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And he knows. I write for the Beacon Journal at this time. So he calls me. And I remember sitting in my, you know, comfy chair in the living room. Hey, Mark, how's it going? And he's like, did you see the paper today? And I said, yes. And he says, did you see the story about the adoption? And I'm like, yeah, I read it. And then he says, remember that story I told you, how my mother gave birth to me while we were driving through the mountains in Georgia? Oh. Oh. I said, McKaysville? And he said, yeah, McKaysville. So Mark, he, he wasn't the only person who learned the circumstances of his birth on Mother's Day in 1997. There were other people in the Akron area who picked up that story, put two and two together. I was born in Georgia, and realized. too. You know, right. <laughs> Akron, Georgia? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, I mean, that must have been going on. Oh, my, man, I was born in Georgia. Look at this story. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. 
Well, the story of the Hicks Clinic was broken by Jane Blasio. She was one of the adoptees, a group of people who would come to call themselves the Hicks Babies. And she lived in Jackson Township in Stark County. And she had grown up knowing she was adopted. But it wasn't until she was an adult did she learn that she had been sold. A black market baby, a relative had called her. So she tried searching for her birth parents, but there were no records. The doctor who delivered her was dead. His secretary was dead. The clinic had been closed decades earlier. But... This was a story that lived in many memories, and slowly, one by one, details started coming out. You said it was a relative, called her a black market baby? Yes. That must have been a heck of a fight. You black market baby! Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> if I recall right, she was actually five years old the first time oh. she heard someone call her a black market baby. So it must baby. have been a fight. So okay. it started young. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Well, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Thomas Hicks. Now, he he sold more than 200 babies. The reason 49 of them ended up in Ohio was because he had a broker in Akron. It was a woman who worked for Goodrich, and she'd bought four babies herself and then started quietly spreading the word. And it filtered throughout the companies that made up Akron's famed tire-making industry. If a couple wanted a child... This woman would be the middleman. My, my father worked for Firestone. He did. Yeah. You better double check your birth certificate. Your father yeah. worked for Goodyear. No, oh, no. <laughs> That's true. You know what? It's it's hard to be in the Akron area and not have an ancestor that worked at one of these places. Now, you know, this, this all sounds a bit nefarious, but to many people, Dr. Thomas Hicks was as much saint as scoundrel. He definitely had a shady background. He got his medical degree from Emory University in Atlanta in 1917. Then he moved to Copper Hill, Tennessee, where he promptly lost his license to practice in that state because he was convicted of selling drugs. Well, he used his time in jail wisely. He studied lung disease that was fatal to copper miners, which was a very common industry in that area. And when he got out of jail, he was hired by a Tennessee mining company to work with their employees. Did you say how long he was in jail? I don't have that. Okay. Um, But, again, he fell into trouble. He got fired because he filed more claims then there were miners who had the disease. Uh-oh. So in the mid-1940s, you know, he's lost his, his licenses in Tennessee. He's right on the border with Georgia. So he slips right over the line, and he opens up the Hicks Clinic. Oh, look, I can practice over here. Exactly. Okay. And he has a decidedly different operation going on this time. This time, he's helping women with unwanted pregnancies. Now, keep in mind, birth control was hard to come by in the 50s and the early 60s. And the birth control pill that we know today didn't even come onto the market until 1960. And when it did, some states even banned the use of it. Oh. So, at the very least, taking birth control pills was frowned on. But you know what was even more frowned upon? What's that? Being an unwed mother. Oh. You could not win. You could not win back then. So for many of his patients, Hicks provided abortions. 
It was illegal then, of course, but many, many people in town knew of women who died having back alley procedures. So the town pretty much ignored the clinic. It seemed very preferable to the alternative. Right. So just, you know, kind of sweep it under the rug type of thing. Yeah. I mean, they saw it as a service. Okay. They even built a small airstrip just outside McKaysville so that prominent families could fly their daughters in for abortions. Okay. Well, for women who didn't want abortions, but didn't want their babies, Dr. Hicks found another way of resolving their problem. He could make their babies disappear. Now, women who needed this to happen had a variety of reasons. In Jane Blasio's research, she found one mother was a rape victim. She found another young mother who had a husband in jail. And many of them didn't know how they were going to feed their babies. In the 1960s, the region was poor and times were really hard. Many people lived in shacks, were next to dirt roads. There was little choice but to work at the copper mines. In some cases, the choice of what to do when faced with another mouth to feed was simply taken out of their hands by a father or a husband or a boyfriend who said, this is not going to happen. So fans of Dr. Hicks say he provided a valuable service at a difficult time. And it was one where one family's crisis became another family's blessing because this baby was going to go to a childless couple that was desperate to share their love. Now, of course, I mean, Dr. Hicks made money off the deal. He would take the unwanted babies and sell them for up to $1,000 each. Now, the would-be parents were warned not to ask for a specific gender. Their names would be placed on a list, and they'd be given 24 hours to pick up whichever baby was born next. Now, in the early years, Dr. Hicks made kind of a show of this process. When the couple would arrive at his clinic, the mother would be put in a hospital gown, she'd be put in a hospital bed, they'd bring the baby to her with a bottle, and she'd have to sit there in the bed and feed the baby. Just kind of do this bonding ritual, sort of like as if playing the part would help help make it feel real. Okay. But as the years went on, his interest in, in playing that role did declined. The clinic deteriorated. The babies would later be told by their adopting parents that when they arrived to collect them, the bundle was just handed out the back door. As soon as the cash was handed over, they didn't get so much as a bottle of formula or a Quick blanket. Quick in and out. Yeah, yeah, give me your money. Here's a kid. Go. Go. Yeah, get out of here. The adopting parents, of course, never saw the birth mothers, and the birth mothers never knew where their babies were going. Well, this practice ended in 1964 when local authorities decided to stop letting Hicks get away with doing abortions. Some in town say it was pressure by other doctors who were jealous of the money that he was making. So the city made a big show of it. They arrested Hicks. And then after he agreed to surrender his medical license, the charges were dropped. He was an old man by this time. He, he would die eight years later in 1972 of leukemia at the age of 83. Oh, wow, okay. So he was doing this while he was in, into his 70s. Well, as Jane Blasio found and reached out to her fellow Hicks babies, she started a registry. Many of them put their DNA in a data bank. They would even hold events requesting McKaysville townsfolk to chip in their DNA for possible matches. 
a small handful of Hicks babies found families this way, and at least two Hicks babies discovered they were sisters. But to date, the great majority have not been able to find their birth families. Yeah, that's probably because, uh, you know, nobody local would... I mean, these these would be from people far away. They didn't want, you know, anybody in their community to know, so... It's... It's really kind of interesting because decades after this all happened, I mean, when these kids were searching for their birth parents, they were in their 30s and 40s, and people in town still didn't want to talk about it. It was still a very shadowy thing, and a lot of shame still surrounded it. Right. So, but, the, you know, the Hicks babies, they kind of became a sort of family to each other. They held reunions. They took a group excursions to the birthplace. To this day, they still organize dinners and events so they can get together. But Mark Eckenrode, he wanted more. He wanted to know his family. And he knew he had to be patient. As the years went by, he watched some technological evolutions that he prayed would be the answer. You see, as an Eckenrode, Mark, he was an only child, he had spent years doing his family genealogy. He connected with Eckenrodes all over the continent. He drove to different states. He drove to Canada. He collected ancestral stories. He compiled a book full of photographs. He was even talking about holding a national reunion for Eckenrode branches. It was really important to him, to know his family and to be part of that history. To doing all that study, you know. Oh, years, years. I mean, I, I think he had an entire room filled with information. I know that you kind of did the same thing. I, mean, I did, and I know how he feels. I right. mean, you got all these names of people that you've never met because they've been dead for 100, 200 years, but you feel that they're yours. You right. know them to be yours, and, and you feel it. So you can imagine how he must have felt on learning that he was adopted with no record of his birth parents. Mark went from being a man with thousands of relatives that he could identify by name to being someone who didn't know a single human being on the planet who shared his blood. That's crazy. That's crazy to think about. Fortunately, society took some turns nobody saw coming. DNA technology continued to advance. The internet and its uses expanded. Social media was invented. American culture changed. And suddenly, people were voluntarily submitting their DNA to public databases. Not just thousands of people. Millions of people. Some were interested in their genealogy. Some just wanted to know where their ancestors came from. Some were looking for clues to their health. During the holidays, they were promoting it like a Christmas gift. Get your, get your DNA done. And as those databases grew, providers would offer to let people exchange emails if their DNA proved to be closely related. So you might get a, an email from 23andMe or Ancestry.com saying, hey, you know what? There's a half-sibling showing up here. Do you want to exchange emails? So Mark watched all of this with interest and began uploading his DNA to all the genealogical databases that he could and then waited and waited. And then almost almost exactly 20 years after that Mother's Day shocker, 
the pieces of his life fell into place. Well, that's all interesting, very interesting. It sounds like a great time to introduce tonight's armchair detective. We have on the phone, Mark Eckenrode. Hi, Mark. Hi, Paula. (laughs) We are really happy to have you with us tonight. You've got such an incredible story, and I... I'm so intrigued with the whole story of how you set out to find your birth parents because it took 20 years for you to do that. You basically had to sit around and wait for technology to catch up. But I really want our listeners to know a little bit more about you. So put us in your shoes on Mother's Day in 1997 when you read the paper and draw some conclusions. Tell us a little bit about that day and what that was like for you. Well, really, we would have to go back to understanding that my whole life I had uh, been told that I was born in this small town in Georgia uh, because I was born on vacation. I arrived early. They were on their way to Florida. This is a story my parents told me. Uh, They were going to Florida to see my grandfather, who did live in Miami. And I arrived a little early, so they had to stop in this little small town and give birth to me, and then they headed right back home. And I believed that my whole life. So that that was just a part of me, and it was an accepted part of me. It was just a part of who I said I was. On Mother's Day in 97, um, a friend of mine, who I had known since we were small boys, called me after church and said, have you seen today's newspaper? And I said, no. He said, well, you better go get it. He said, do you remember when we found out from your birth certificate that you were born in Georgia and we teased you about it? I said, yeah. He goes, well, go get the paper. So I went and I got the Beacon Journal. I went home and I opened it up. It was the front page. Um, And it was a story that included a little map down at the bottom. It said McKaysville, Georgia, and it had a a spot that pointed to Akron, Ohio. I thought, well, how strange is that? Because that's where I was born. I get into the story a little bit, and it's talking about a doctor who, in this small town, was delivering babies and then putting them out for families to come down and pay for Um, basically to purchase that baby and to take it home as their own, no questions asked. So my initial thought is black market babies. As I thought about it, I thought, this this is so strange that all these other people were born in the same little town that I was born in, but how unfortunate for them that they were kind of sold. And then the more I thought about it, I, I thought to myself, well, gosh, what? What if I'm one of them? Are you talking about a matter of minutes for you to arrive at that question, or are you talking about an hour to arrive at that question? No. Before I finished reading the article, I had come to that, at least come to that question, what if I'm one of them? Uh, I finished the story, and I read it a second time. And after I finished it the second time, I began to think to myself, Who goes to Florida when they're nine months pregnant? It didn't make any sense to me. For the first time in my life, I started to question 
everything I had been told by my parents. And I guess it would be a matter of maybe 15 minutes when I came to the conclusion of, I've got to be one of these. This whole thing that they've been telling me has not been true. At that point, and, one thing that we've told our listeners about was your uh, all your work on your Eckenrode family genealogy and that connection you had to so many thousands of Eckenrodes and the history of them in this country, which went back centuries, and all of a sudden realizing that you are not by birth an Eckenrode. What were, what were you feeling at that time? Um, that was probably one of the first uh, thoughts that came into my head after I finished that phone call was all that work. I mean, you lose the identity that you grew up with pretty quick um, when you start to make that realization that you're not an Eckenrode. Your parents are not really your parents. And, I mean, it was several days before I started to say things like, what a waste of time that was, because I did get a little bit angry uh, at the situation. Um, That family tree had taken up so much of my time and so much of my life. I'm loving every minute of it, but it had become expensive. There had been a lot of travel. Um, but on the positive side, I'd met a lot of great people, a lot of family members, collected tons of pictures, and owned it. I mean, I was very proud um, of my family history. And um, for that suddenly to be taken away in, in, in a way that uh, came out of the blue, and I also was struck by the fact that I may never know who my real family is because I had already been told Dr. Hicks kept no records. Nobody knows what baby went with what family and who the mother was. So from going, uh, you know, I went from being very proud of my heritage and very proud of my family to being in a position where I'm thinking, I'll never know who I really am. I'll never know who my family was. So when people ask me if I got angry when I found out about this, I would say that was probably the one thing that did really anger me. Not much else angered me. There was some depression, but yeah, the idea that I had lost my heritage, lost my family, was probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Now, I know it it didn't take long before you started making your own personal journeys down to McKaysville, and I always had the sense that you were down there looking for faces that might look familiar, might resemble your own. Tell me a little bit about those trips to McKaysville and and what you were hoping for. We had decided as a group of Hicks babies that we were going to go down um, as a group in just a couple of months after that story came out. Uh, We had a meeting at one of the other Hicks babies' home. Uh, I had finally, you know, come to grips with the fact that there were several of us possibly as many as 50 of us um, who had been identified, several of which were going to be at a small meeting. And that is the first thing that you do. You walk through the door and you start looking at every face in the room because you don't know if you're looking at cousins or brothers and sisters. Um, So, yes, you walk in and you compare noses and eyes and hair, what you sound like, but, you know, that provided really very little for any of us, but we made the decision that we were going to go to McKaysville as a group, and we were going to tour the clinic, what was left of it, 
And yes, indeed, as soon as you get into town, every face gets an examination. Everybody you meet, you're checking their nose, their ears, um, because you just don't know and you're looking. You're trying to find, you know, it's almost like you're grasping for something solid, which would be family. And I don't know that any of us ever, you know, ever, you know, returned from there thinking to ourselves, well, I saw somebody who really looked like me or who talked like me. But we certainly did look, and I certainly did look. And then when I got back, I got online, and I started going through old yearbooks from the local high school in Bannon County, and newspaper articles and pictures and whatever I could get my hands on. Uh, because then, you know, basically that's all we had was a very, very basic Internet and, uh, and each other. So, yeah, there was a period of time where... All I wanted was to see somebody with my nose, which is pretty remarkable. <laughs> and I, you know, I looked and looked, and uh, I think everybody else was doing the same thing. We're going to move ahead just a little bit because you've got a story that could fill a book. I mean, just your entire experience and your entire, and your entire search. But I want to move ahead to where technology is now starting to play a role in your hopes for solving your personal mystery, and that is, who is your birth mother and your birth father? So I know you've gone well over a decade at that point with no clue as to who your birth parents are. Tell us when you started having hope that you were going to be able to solve this and why you felt you were going to be able to solve it. Well, when we first started in 1997, uh, there were some laboratories that were doing DNA testing. Very primitive compared to what we have now. But um, they did do a DNA test on our group to see if any of us were siblings. And it all came back negative. Uh, So at that point, you're absolutely right. I, for one, gave up. I had continued to hear people tell stories about the doctor burning records keeping no records, there's no way you're ever going to find your birth family. That's what we were being told. And it was almost 15 years later that I uh, came across an ad online, I think, for Ancestry.com. And so I had, I had built my Eckenrode family tree and put it on there just because I wanted it you know, to be kept one day they had an ad on there for Ancestry DNA. And it said, you can add your DNA to our list of 500,000 people who have already added their DNA to our Ancestry um, program. And I thought, well, you know, this, this is something because what if my DNA matches with somebody in their 500,000 person database? It's a start. I might find something. So I did. Uh, I purchased the program. I got the kit, uh, took the test, and sent it back in. And at the time, they were swamped. Supposed to take four to six weeks. Well, it took more like nine weeks for me to get my results. And the whole time, I'm thinking, you know, what are the chances that anybody is going to match with me? 500,000 people out of 300 million. But I tried to keep the chin up. Eventually, I got my results back, and it came back with five second cousins. And 
I was completely knocked over by that. I thought, well, now, okay, I know that if they're my second cousins, we share great-grandparents. And everybody has four sets of great-grandparents. So this ought to be, you know, easy. So I started going through all these records, all of these people's family trees, the ones that had them. And I gathered up eight names of people who I thought would be, you know, candidates to be my great-grandparent. And then sent notices, little notes still, as many of them as I could. I've, uh, I gotta, cousins. I have to interrupt you here for one second because it almost seems like your whole adult life was training you for this moment because an average person would have no idea what to do with that information. And yet you were self-trained in piecing together family genealogies. And I could just imagine your whole life leading you up to this moment and you saying, okay, I know what to do next. Did you feel that at all? Well, yeah, but do you know who I have to thank for that? Uh, Who? (laughs) I have to thank you for that because of the days that you spent teaching me about family relationships and who's who way back in the early 80s, long before any of this happened. Um, I learned about cousins and first cousins, second cousins, and third cousins, and how the family systems work. And so when the day came that I saw second cousins, I knew exactly what that meant. That meant that I shared a great-grandparent with them. And uh, I I was able to take it from there. It was a much longer process and more detailed than I thought it was going to be because I'm relying on other people to get back to me with information. And sometimes people are like, I don't want anything to do with this because I would send an explanation. I was adopted from this clinic in Georgia and I don't know who my parents are and the records are destroyed. Some people are like, you know what? I don't want to deal with anybody in that situation and they don't respond. I was fortunate because I did find a family that said, uh, I will help you if I can. Two people actually. And they both came from my second and third cousin list. Um, Are these on your uh, mother's side or your father's side? These ones were on my mother's side. Okay. Now, um, when you start out and you have these eight people who could possibly be your great-grandparent, you you know, I made a record of all their names, and then I started writing out all of their children. Because at some point, one of their children... Is going to be my grandparent. And there are a lot of children. So out of the eight great-grandparents, I ended up with 62 possible grandparents. And then you have to go through those 62 people. And then, you know, and I started to see this was going to be a really daunting thing. So I was very thankful when one of the second cousins said, I'll help you. I'll, I'll help you as much as I can. She did a DNA test, obviously, because we had matched the second cousins, but she said, let me get my cousins, some of my cousins uh, on my mother's side to do the same. One of them will come back as, a, as an, uh, uh, a cousin, or some of them will come back as a cousin. One is going to come back as a sibling, or maybe two of them will come back as a sibling. Let's try it. And it made sense to me. Yes, if she's my second cousin, 
and she's having her cousins do a DNA test. And eventually that will lead to me finding a mother or a father. At the time, I didn't know if it would be a mother or a father. So um, what we ended up doing on that side of the family at that point was we found that the person who I thought was my second cousin was actually a first cousin. Her, what are called centimorgans, which is just a technical term that they use in, in DNA testing to determine whether you're a first cousin or a second cousin. She had come back as a high uh, second cousin, which meant she could be a first cousin. And it turned out she was. So she went through all of her aunts and uncles trying to figure out if she could tell me which one was my mother. So I said, well, go ahead and see if you can get one child from each of those aunts and uncles to do a test. And they're all either going to come back as cousins or one will come back as a sibling for me. And that was what happened. We had all of my mother's that I now know as my mother. We had all of her brothers and sisters listed, all of their children, and we had one of those children from each do a DNA test. They all came back as cousins, except one came back as a sibling. That was how I figured out who my mother was, was through discovering my sibling, and that was only because I had a cousin who was willing to help me. Otherwise, I might still be looking. Now, that final word on your mother was actually close to the 20th anniversary of you reading that story. Exactly. Now, you had, by then, you had figured out your dad pretty much the same way, right? Well, that was a couple of years prior. Tell us about that one. That was when I was living in Georgia. I had learned that you could take your ancestry DNA sample and you could transfer it and upload it to two other DNA testing sites, 23andMe and Family Tree DNA. And at the time it was free, so I did it. I took my ancestry DNA packet and I uploaded it to both of those other DNA testing sites. 23andMe immediately came back with more second cousins. And most of them were familiar. I had already seen these names before because they were in Ancestry as well. Uh, And one day I went to my family tree DNA page and opened it. And it said, you have a new family member. And I opened that page and it said, you have a nephew. (laughs) A nephew. I said, this is awesome. And I looked at the name and the last name was Craven's. And that was one of the names that I had on my list as a possible great-grandparent way back in the very beginning. William Cravens was one of the names. So I see Larry Cravens as a nephew. So I dart off this quick message to him and their inner message system. And I said, I was adopted. I don't know. I'm, 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 you know, reaching out to you because you came back as a nephew. Um, here's my story, you know, get back to me when you can. And I sent it. And it wasn't five minutes. And I got one back that said, if you're my uncle, then my father is your brother, and your father's name is Wayne Cravens. And in that moment, now that moment was like a lightning bolt. Oh, wow. The first time in the whole process 
since the day I read the newspaper article, it was the first time I actually felt stunned by any of it. Wow. He sent me his phone number and said, please call me right away. Now, I had heard stories of people, you know, trying to reunite with birth family and getting the door slammed in their face and being rejected out of hand and nobody wanted to deal with them. But I called Larry and he was just ecstatic. And he said, you know what? He goes, I'm really not surprised that there was another one of you. Because I'm not really surprised at all. And he told me a little bit about, you know, my father when he was small. I mean, when Larry was small, my nephew, he would stay at my dad's on the weekends with another cousin of his. They'd sit up and watch Atlanta Braves baseball games all night and popcorn. And, you know, it, it was just a good memory for him. He told me a little bit about my dad that way and said, you know, I want to meet you as soon as I can. So I said, well, I live in Georgia. He said, well, I live in Missouri. I'm like, oh, great. He said, I'll meet you in the town where our father, where your father lived, called Monterey, Tennessee. I'll meet you there Sunday. I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, perfect, perfect. Let's do that. So I went up to the, we decided to meet at the Cracker Girl, which is funny because on my mother's side, the first blood relative I ever met, I met at a Cracker Barrel. Now I'm meeting one on my dad's side at a Cracker Barrel. And I went up there and went into the Cracker Barrel, and there was a line, so I had to give her my name. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say Cravens. And I walked up, and she said, what is your last name? And I said, Cravens. And she looked at me with a smile, and she said, Honey, you'll have to give me your first name because there are four Cravens families ahead of you already. <laughs> and I was like, what? Here, I was like in the heart of where my family had settled in Tennessee, and they were there generations later, and now there were literally hundreds of them. Wow. And I had never had anything like that happen to me because Eppin Road in Akron, Ohio is like, what? There wasn't another one for, you know, 100 miles. That I knew of. Right. But here I was, and uh, I went in and, and went out on the porch and got on the Cracker Barrel rocker, started to rock. I'm nervous. I've never met anybody that close to me as a family member, my blood relative. So I'm rocking in this chair, and an Asian guy walks up to me, and he says, are you Mark? And in my head, I'm going, gosh, Larry brought a friend. And I stood up and said, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, I'm Larry. And I must have really given him a strange look because he started laughing. He said, I'm not what you expected, am I? And I said, I'm not going to lie to you, no, no. He said, no, my mother was from the Philippines. So that's, my dad met my mom in the, uh, when he was in the Army. So I'm half Philippine. He goes, and so is my sister Cheryl. I said, I have a niece? He goes, yeah, you got a niece named Cheryl. She looks just like me. We were in there for about two hours just laughing, and he told me a lot about my father, uh, a lot about my brother. In those months and years since your meeting with Larry, tell us about what you've discovered. How many siblings do you have now? You were an only child as an Road. You are not an only child anymore. Tell us about that. Oh, goodness, no. Um, well, I discovered, actually, I just discovered over Thanksgiving last week that there was actually another sibling. So 
I'm now the youngest of 11. <laughs> That's from both sides and, of the family. That's both sides of the family, yeah. Oh, There's, wow. uh, my mother had four plus me, and my dad had five plus me. So. And you're in contact That's with it. several of them, right? I mean, you've got a relationship oh, yeah. with many of them. Yes, I still have four siblings who are alive, and I have talked and met with every one of them. On my dad's side, my sister Gail is who I went to spend Thanksgiving with. Uh, well, I spent the weekend after Thanksgiving with her up in Monterey, and I've met my brother Gary. He lives in Alabama, and uh, those are the two that are alive on my dad's side. On my mom's side, I have met, I have uh, two living siblings and have met both of them. And so it's, it's sad. I missed uh, meeting my, my sister on my mother's side by just a year. She had passed away just a year before I was introduced to the family and met the family. Um, but, yeah, 11, when I was the youngest. And when you found out who your birth mother was, you discovered something else about her and where she was living. Tell us about that. Well, um, I knew that she grew up in Blue Ridge, Georgia, which is just a few miles from McKaysville, where I was born, and that she had moved to Atlanta uh, at some point, maybe in the 50s, the middle 50s. Uh, right after I was born, my birth mother and one of my brothers uh, decided they were going to go too, and they ended up moving to Akron, Ohio. So it turns out that my whole life, even long before I knew anything about the adoption, I lived about 10 miles from my actual birth mother and had no idea. And didn't she, wasn't she alive on the day you read that Mother's Day story? She was. She lived about another year and a half. I believe she died in 1999, and I found out in 1997. <sighs> so there was about a year and a half there where we were both, you know, like I said, we were, you know, I was aware that I was adopted, and had already started thinking about looking for my birth mother, and there she was on the other side of town. But we had all been told our families, our parents were most likely all down in the North Georgia, Eastern Tennessee, Atlanta area, and, you know, that's where we should be doing our searching. But I found out just recently that, no, she just lived in South Akron. That's just amazing. Now, I know people have very different views of how they feel about Dr. Thomas Hicks. Some saw him as a scoundrel. He certainly had some shady things in his background. Others saw him as a saint, somebody who was willing to offer a service that desperate women really needed at the time and couldn't get. Where do you fall on that? How do you feel about the man who delivered you and sold you? Well, I know that, that for many years he was famous in the South for providing abortions uh, prior to when they were legal. So he had skirted the law for a long time. But after having gone there to McKaysville and seeing the surrounding areas uh, and the really uh, severe poverty that existed, I'm sure, much more so back then than now, um, it's bad now, but I'm sure that 55 and 60 years ago, 70 years ago, it was probably a whole lot worse. And I also know that Dr. Hicks 
had a good reputation amongst people who were willing to ignore his past, you know, and just dealt with him as their family doctor. And I know that he, uh, although he was a physician, he was getting paid many times for his services with chickens or eggs or a side of beef, moonshine probably. So he wasn't making a lot of money. He was getting paid by poor people who didn't have anything to give him except, you know, like I said, eggs or chicken or something that they could take off their farm and give to him. Um, and I know that had to have been a difficult adjustment for him. So I've never found any reason to be angry with him. A lot of people do look down on his abortion, you know, from provisions in the early days. I don't particularly have a stance on that. I don't, you know, I don't think about that. I think about the fact that when I was born, he probably was in the middle of one of the highest poverty areas in the country, and definitely in Appalachia. And he was providing a service. My mom that, that raised me couldn't have kids. And a lot of the other mothers that I've been told about from other Hicks babies were in the same position, unable to have children, but wanted them. And the process of adoption back then, I guess, was quite like it is now, uh, timely and expensive. So the very fact that he was able to negotiate with people to pay a small fee, which I guess wasn't that small when you think about it, but he charged the mothers nothing for the delivery. In fact, gave them... Uh, enough money to go get a, you know, get their hair done and a dress uh, when they left the clinic and uh, charged them nothing, but gave the arriving parents their baby and a birth certificate with their name on it. Um, and, you know, he charged them for what he considered uh, to be a fair amount because of what he was doing. You know, he was providing them with his little bundle joy and yeah, he wasn't going to do that for free. I forget what he called it. He had a name for that, some sort of a service fee that he was charging them. But it wasn't outrageous. And, you know, I'm thankful to him because I've been down there. And I know that if I had not been given up or given away, I would have grown up in a really different world than the one that I did grow up in. So, yeah, I don't have any anger towards Dr. Hicks at all. And I kind of appreciate what he did do. Well, Mark, that's that's just an incredible story. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to bring up? I think uh, I think we covered just about everything. That was pretty good. And I, I I would say that we are still working with some of the other Hicks babies who have not made any contact with family and are still working. So I mean, the work goes on. My story is over with, but. We still have several Hicks babies who are in the process of having their DNA matched up with others, and um, I'm working with a couple of them right now that have gotten their DNA results to try to narrow down that tree so that we can find their parents for them. So we're still working on it. It's a work in progress. That's wonderful. And you are certainly in a position to be the example of how it was successful. And I'm sure that's got to be bringing a lot of hope to the other Hicks babies, seeing how that worked in your favor. 
Well, it's, it is true. I try to remind them of it all the time. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on Ohio Mysteries. And good luck in, in your work with them. And hopefully we'll have uh, a lots of other successful Hicks uh, babies connections made in the near future. All righty. Thank you very much, Paula. All right. That's it for tonight. If you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and now Instagram. Yeah, we're moving into the 21st century. And if you're listening to us on a podcast, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any episodes. And for heaven's sake, tell your friends about us. The only way we can grow is for you to spread the word. Paula, that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. That's right. It's Taylor Lamborn of Cleveland. You heard a clip of her song Gravity way back at the start of this podcast, and I'm glad you made it to the end because your reward is you get to hear the whole song. You can find Taylor on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, or go to her website. That's www.taylorlamborn.com. Let me spell it for you. T-A-Y-L-O-R-L-A-M-B-O-R-N. You'll find her schedule of performances there, so you can check her out in person. And while you're there, sign up for her newsletter. She's working on some new releases, and she will keep you up to date all about her music and her career. Fantastic. You can also find Taylor Lamborn and all of our featured musical artists on our website. There's a link at the top of the page at ohiomysteries.com. So here's Gravity. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio mystery. The thunder rolled, rolled, rolled. Then the sky went black, black, black. And we lost control. And now I'm questioning sound. I can tell the difference between heaven and a sound.
what's all this about your gravity? Rules you learn in school, they don't apply to me. Keep sitting cross legged, I'll be dancing with clouds at my feet. I don't care much about your gravity. I don't care much about your gravity I don't care much about your gravity A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.